Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? I'm Jay Hall, and welcome to another episode of the History of Being Black podcast. How you doing today? Hope everything is good with you. Hope you're fine. You know, got a chance to kind of clear some air. It occurred to me, and, you know, by the time you hear this, it already has passed, that this past week was World Mental Health Day. And for those that don't know, I'm reading this straight off wiki. The origin of um, World Mental Health Day is, quote, is an international day for global mental health, education, awareness, and advocacy against social stigma. It was celebrated in 1992 at the initiative of the World Federation for Mental Health, a global mental health organization with members and contacts in more than 150 countries. That's it right there. World Mental Health Day. And it was something about it that um, stuck with me. I know we all, they, they also have um, World Mental Health Month, things of that nature. I, I wanted to, you know, talk about it online, you know, like on my social media. Like I wanted to get into it, but I was so wrapped up in everything that I had done. And to be honest with you, I needed a mental health day myself. <laughs> and then I was like, oh man, it was mental health day. I wanted to, you know, advocate for it and stuff like that. But before we dive into that, I wanted to talk about first my history um, with mental health, like my first introduction. So my first introduction, I would say, was growing up on my block back home in Detroit. And I'm going to change these names to respect the people that I came up on, because even though time has passed and a lot of things are public record, just so things won't get sticky, I'm, I'm going to change the name. All right. My first introduction to any type of mental health that was back then just different was a gentleman by the name of, let's just call him Tony. And Tony was the son of a lady who lived on the street named Miss News. Okay. And Tony would sit in his room all day. He had like a big shaggy kind of like Afro, unkept, somewhat thick mustache, always had his shirt off. And he was always hanging his arm outside the window. He would just wave. I never, ever, ever, ever heard Tony's voice to this day. I, n- I never heard his voice. But whenever we as kids will be like throwing our Frisbees and if a Frisbee got stuck on Miss News like roof, Tony would get it for us. It would always happen to hit like within arm's length. And he'll we'll say, hey, thank you, Tony. And then he'll throw the Frisbee down and we'll get it. That's that's all we know. And then whenever I would go to Miss News's house to get something whether it was like some sugar to borrow from my grandmother or, you know, just to go over the house, go upstairs. She'll say, go upstairs and grab such and such. And Tony would come out of his room, maybe from using the bathroom. He was always in pajamas, didn't speak. Um, the word was that he was shell-shocked. It was so many different stories. He, you know, he was, yeah, and there was breakdown. He fought in the war or, or Nam or no, he was just in the military. Just, just shell-shocked. That's what everyone was saying, you know? And it was kind of a, the normal of our, of our day. She had about maybe six sons and one daughter. Um, her daughter had children that I played with. And this was just a thing that you knew. And I think she even told my grandmother that in each generation, there's always one child out of her grandkids that at least has something going on upstairs. I think that's how she framed it with my grandmother. And I say that to say that one of her grandkids was somebody who I grew up with. And let's just say, you know, his name is Barry. And Barry used to get a check for what was going on with him upstairs for his mental health. And 
Barry used to brag about it. He's like, yo, I got certified papers. I got this check. And it didn't seem like it was a big deal. Like none of us, at least I did, make that connection between him and even his uncle because he was, you know, it was like a thing everybody was doing around the neighborhood. Yo, you claim you crazy. You get a check from the government. You get certified papers and you can't go to jail. That's what they were saying. Can't go to jail. So Barry used to show us his check. He used to come around like, yo, I got this check. And even though he was a kid, it would would say to the parents of whatever. So he went to his mom, but he would brag about it. And as a kid, you're looking at the zeros, you're like, man. I remember I went home and told my mom, like, yo, mom, can I? You always say I'm crazy. Can I walk him out and get no check? She's like, boy, go sit down. She made a different type of crazy, right? And so I think about that and I think about how everybody around my hood, it was always like us and them. And then somehow these people were kind of, there was a norm. If you had some sort of mental situation going on back then, everyone was kind of aware if you were, the neighborhood kind of took care of its own. If you were kind of strangling about, people knew who you belonged to in that sense. But there was no, I don't, I don't remember necessarily seeing any type of real, I would say like medical help or government help or anything of that nature. It was kind of like we all, we all just knew and that we all coexisted. And when certain people, if they got to drinking, the attitude was always like, oh, you crazy. You crazy. You need to stop that drinking. You're already taking something. It was, it was always that. So with Barry and his certified, you know, papers, you know, he used to get in trouble in school or will get in trouble in school. And I used to realize that Barry can go sit in the corner. Like nothing would ever happen to him. Like he would go sit in the corner. The teachers would talk to him for a little second and they'll just dismiss him and they'll make him run in the hallway. And he would go through the hallway and be laughing at me because I had to go back to class. I'm getting in trouble. He'd be laughing at me and they'll just like have him out in the hallway and he'll just be walking back and forth, walking back and forth, walking back and forth. That's what he'd be doing. He'll just be walking back and forth, walking back and forth, laughing at me. Right. And the teachers be ignoring him. Everybody be ignoring him. Fast forward when I got a little bit older. <laughs> it was this guy when I was in elementary school. I was like in the fifth grade. He had transferred to our school. And man, he was the biggest fifth grader I had ever seen. I think he was my height now. He was like 5'11". And everybody used to call him King Cooper because his, his fade looked like a crown because it really, really wasn't like a flat top. And so everybody called him King Cooper. Yo, this dude was so strong. He was like the strongest dude I knew. And so it was me and the, and my two other friends, we were like a three amigos. Myself, this one guy named Courtney, and this other dude named Carlos, right? So <laughs> King Cooper, he was going around, he would just snatch your cookies. Like if your mama made you some cookies, he'd be snatching those, you know? If you was eating and you had a taco or whatever at the lunchtime, he'll snatch that. He'll take it and he'll just eat it. Nobody was saying nothing to him. So I remember my friend Courtney was like, yo, he tried to snatch my stuff. I'm going to wreck him. He was like, all right. And Courtney, you know, was my guy. So I'm like, yeah, I've seen Courtney put people down before. So Courtney initially was going to go a different direction at lunchtime one time. But for some reason, Courtney was like, no, nah, I'm going to sit next to Cooper. He sat next to Cooper. We all looking at Courtney like, why are you sitting over there? Courtney crack his juice, drink his juice. He bring out his little extra bag. His mom made cookies for him. Cooper was like, try to snatch. Courtney was like, no. He was like, all right. He stood up. Courtney stood up. But then the teacher came 
and then grabbed Cooper, and then Cooper pushed the teacher out the way. And this was a man. And then the man kind of got up, you know, was like, hey, who tripped me? Knowing good and well, Cooper was the one who actually pushed him. Okay? Then Cooper chill. He said, I'm going to see you later. Like, all right. So then, later on in class, the teacher's line is up to go to the bathroom. It's Courtney time. All of a sudden, we just see when Courtney go in the bathroom, he gets thrown back out. Boosh! And slam up against the locker. He gets up. We like, what's going on? Courtney dizzy in the mud. King Cooper come out. Boom, boom, boom. He just bounced to the side. Boom, boom. Courtney like, all right, I've been ready for this. He snatches and he know he touches his nose or whatever, throw up his hands. Courtney giving it all he got. Wow, 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 wow. I swear to you on everything, Cooper looked at that and just laughed at him. Gave him one big one. Boom, dead in the chest. Psh, Courtney's done. I think Courtney probably still sleep from that. Teacher came out like, what happened? Because she went to the restroom too. Nobody knew what happened. She just thought Courtney just went to sleep on his own. Courtney went home that day. So then Carlos was like, man, that ain't going to be me. That ain't going to be me. So I'm saying to myself, like, yo, it's getting icky out here. And then he knew we was the three amigos. So then me and Carlos, we stick together. We go at lunchtime. We sit down and we eating our lunch. And now Cooper come over there and he's sitting next to us. Oh, yeah. By the way, for those that may not understand the reason why we called him Cooper, like I said, because it's high top fade. And if you ain't played Mario Brothers when you was growing up, then your childhood was effed. OK, that's just what it is. So he's sitting next to us and he just stared at Carlos. Now, Carlos was somebody who was spoiled. He always had like a nice gold chain. His mom kept him looking fresh. So he looked at Carlos. He like, yo, I think your chain is my size. So Carlos threw the juice at him and just started wrecking. He didn't give him a chance. He just started wrecking on him, punching him all in the face. Cooper's going left, right, back, forth, back, forth, just taking the punches, taking the punches. It looked like Carlos is going to win. I said it looked like Carlos is going to win. No. All of a sudden, he picks up Carlos, holds him in midair, and slams him on the table. And I promise you, Carlos looked up at me, but he wasn't looking at me. And I looked at Carlos like... And I took a deep breath and he grabbed Carlos again and then started whamming on him. Wham, 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 wham. Just punching him with, I mean, kind of giving him like a slap um, fist. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen in my life, but he would just slam them. All you just start seeing blood just everywhere. I never seen, that's the first time in my life I seen blood jump, jump away from someone's face. Just jump away from someone's face. Then Carlos went night, night. And then Carlos went home. Next coming days of school, everybody looking at me like, yo, you next. I'm like, yikes. I think I am. Because he knew. So I'm like, look, I don't even eat food at lunch. I was one of those kids anyway. So there ain't nothing for him to take. I don't got jury. You know, my shoes are old. There's nothing There's nothing he needs to do to borrow from me. There's, there's nothing. So everything's going smooth for about four days. Then one day on a Friday, I come inside the science class and we were all sitting at these tables and I was late. And when I showed up, the only seat that was available was the one that was next to King Cooper. So everybody looking at me because I can either choose to sit next to King Cooper or sit next to the teacher. But I ain't no punk. Why would I sit next to the teacher? Because if I do that, I'm admitting that I'm scared. So I said, nah, I walked over there real slowly. I pulled out my seat and I sat right next to Cooper. Sat next to him. Everything going good. All of a sudden, the teacher was passing out books. And he said, you're going to have to share. We don't have that many. So he put the one book down between us. And then Cooper grabbed it and I grabbed it at the same time. Now, he told me, he said, hey, listen, Hall, you read. We all heard him. But Cooper felt like 
Maybe the teacher was trying to say that he couldn't read. So he tried to snatch the book. I couldn't let him do that. There was girls looking at me. So I grabbed a book. Well, actually, I had my hands on the book because clearly he was way stronger than me. So when he grabbed it, he almost pulled me out the chair. But I stayed focused. And I said, yo, give me the book. He said for me to read. He said, no, I'm reading. You're going to sit still. And then he pulled on the book. And I said to myself, if I go into this gentleman's body, it's a wrap. And I didn't want it to be a wrap. So as he's pulling me into his body, I just grabbed the book. And the first thing I did was just smushed up against his face. And then it pressed up against an actual desk behind him. So he was a sandwich between the desk, him, and the book that I was holding. Bam! Made a loud noise. Everybody look up. King Cooper rise up in the air. I was not going to let him rise up. So, you know, every Saturday morning, I used to watch wrestling. And the one thing I used to see Hulk Hogan do was throw somebody in the headlock off top. So I jumped up and I grabbed that high top fade and I had it in the headlock and I just started hitting him in the head, hitting him in the head, hitting him in the head, hitting him in the head. Cooper picked me up and then slammed me on the table. Boom! The table split. I'm still hitting it because I'm saying to myself, if I let him go, it's a wrap. He's like, let me go. Fight me. Let me go. I'm like, no, I'm just hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. And he picked me up again. Slam. And the teacher was like, y'all stop. And this is a guy teacher. He's like, y'all stop. He don't want to get in that. So he leave out. And I'm just hitting him, hitting him, hitting him, hitting him. He picked me up again. Boom. I'm like, bam, bam. And then eventually he got tired. And by the time the principal came in there, we both were just laying on the ground. I wasn't rising up. And the teacher was like, let him go, Hall. Now let him go. And so they put us both and they said this in the office. And I remember they called my mom. My mom was at work. So it was the end of the day anyway. My mom said, just send his ass home. All right. They was calling Cooper's house and nobody was answering. Nobody was answering. Like nobody. And he was just sitting there playing with his nails. He's like, ain't nobody going to answer. So then the next day, or I would say that following Monday, he wasn't in school. The principal talked to my mom, come to find out. Cooper had a file about as big as the Bible. And the reason why he was so big, because he got left behind and he had behavior issues, they said. And he had seen a therapist, but his family didn't want him to see the therapist uh, or a child psychologist. And so they pulled all the resources. Family didn't want it. And his family was never home. And he, you know, wasn't allowed to come back to the school no more unless they followed back up with his treatment. Needless to say, he didn't come back. A few years later, I was walking down the street from uh, middle school at that time. And I was coming across this block. I was trying like a new way to walk home. And these dudes was looking at me like, hey, yo. So I look. And at the time, man, I was in private school and I was dressed like a Catholic school geek. Okay. I had the shirt tucked in. Well, I let it out at the school, but you could still see that I was coming from a private school. Okay. And private schools in the hood, by the way, are they're great, but also they can really be a complex thing. Okay. <laughs> so these dudes are like, yo, what you think this is? So apparently I walked down the wrong block. And so they was approaching me and they was like, yo, it was good with you. So before I opened my mouth, I heard a whistle like, yo, leave him alone. He good. I look up and on a two family flat on the porch above, there's an older King Cooper and he's standing above me. I'm looking at him. He's looking at me. He's like, yo, get back to work. And then all of them just kind of, all the dudes that were surrounding me at the time, they all just went back to doing what they was doing. He just kind of gave me a head nod. Just kind of gave him a head nod. And I just went about my way. A few years later, 
or many, many moons later, um, fresh out of college at Howard, needing work because, you know, I majored in communications and I was working in media. And that job is not something you could just come get straight out of college. And even if you do, it doesn't exactly pay like that. So I was working part time and I needed some money. So a friend of mine who knew me from back home when I was in D.C., she also was living out in D.C. too. She said, hey, listen, they're hiring youth counselors. I think it's something you can get into. I think you'd be really good at it. So I was like, all right, cool. I'd be a youth counselor. You know, ain't nothing. So I became a youth counselor fresh out of college. And that was the time where I'm actually in sessions with therapists talking to these kids. I got all types of things going on. I mean, my routine would be in the morning, I would have to give the kids their medications, you know, do evaluations. Later on the afternoon, take them out. Later on that night when they go out to school, make sure I'm sitting in sessions with the therapist. And I heard all kinds of stories. And I did this for I did this for 10 years, working with kids, seeing their outbursts, understanding what the word trigger means. And I was coming across parents who were either dealing with these kids because there was two types of kids, either dealing with them with social issues or some of them um, have been in the juvenile system. And then they found out that they all had mental challenges. Right. They, they had things. They were all diagnosed with something. And, you know, you be in sessions and you be hearing some dark stories. You hear some things. But the one thing that they all had in common was that none of these kids knew about their conditions until they got in trouble. Right. They wasn't necessarily diagnosed with it, you know, because the the parents saw something or, you know, there was something. It was when they got in trouble. That was when they became diagnosed with something. Fast forward in my own personal life, if I can share with you. My first introduction to any type of therapy session was when I was in a relationship. I was involved with someone, you know what I'm saying? She wanted to try any means to work it out. At this point in my life, I was down with it because I had been around therapists. And so I didn't have any type of stigma for it. I actually had curiosity about it, just thought I could never afford it. And to be 100 with you, shout out to her because she paid for it. All right. And within that, you in that session and you're learning things about yourself, even though you're trying to make a relationship work and things of that nature. And you learn things about yourself. I'm actually in there. And my very first session was actually by myself. Therapists wanted to see me by myself. And my very first session, I opened up my mouth and I talked for a full hour. I just let loose for like a full hour. And I'm pretty sure that, and and she's my therapist to this day. She was just like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. 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 All right. Okay. Okay. I mean, she started off by saying, tell me a little about yourself. And I did the whole entire session. And I remember when I walked out of that session, at that time, the office is in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. I walked around the entire circle for about an hour. And I don't think I've ever felt so light in my life. I was like, yo, what just happened? Did I just, did I just tell my actual story? Like, what, what just happened? You know, did I just talk about this? Did I just talk about that? Did I mention I brought up things that I hadn't necessarily said out loud in years? Like, I don't even remember some of the stuff that I even said, even now as I'm talking to you. It's not that I'm not trying to be transparent, but talking about your life in chronological order, there was something about it that was freeing to me. Um, And I didn't realize how much things I had stored, even for someone like me who's considered, you know, I'm very much so. I say what's on my mind. I like to think that I was at that time, I like to think that I'm not somebody who really keeps a lot inside, but lo and behold, I was. 
go through that session, and then I'm going through the actual coupling session, right? And needless to say, me and the young lady, the relationship did not work out, but I always appreciate her for having that introduction because I ended up keeping the therapist, right? And she ended up becoming my therapist. Later on, I got in another relationship, some moons later, and we went to a therapist, and when I walked in there, it was kind of on some, she was already sitting down with the therapist, and she was like, yeah, fix him. Yo, fix him. I need you to fix him. And so I don't need to bore you with the details, but you probably kind of figure out that that session didn't go too well, right? And the reason why that session didn't go too well because of what I just told you, like fix him. There was, it wasn't, the session wasn't just, oh, we have something going on. It was, oh, he has something going on. You know what I mean? He has something going on and he can't acknowledge it. That was a one and done. That didn't go well at all. So now I'm in this place where I've had, you know, these two sessions in a relationship. Both relationships are over and I'm trying to figure some things out. Thankfully, my therapist, black woman, very understanding of things, very much so understanding, put me on like a payment plan when it came to my session, just was really patient with me when it came to getting the money because my money was all over the place. It was going to bills, I'm working as a freelancer, I'm I'm working with kids, I was coming to the end of working with kids. Money wasn't just necessarily, so she, she helped find me ways that I can pay and she was very patient, very understanding with me. And I didn't do a session like every single week. You know, sometimes I had to chill out for like a month or some change until I got the bread. It's just what it was. But I really felt the need to keep going. After I would say three years of that, I had my first breakthrough, like literally my first breakthrough. And a breakthrough is what is simply as Oprah would call like your aha moment. Like I had an aha moment. And within that aha moment, I started to understand certain patterns in my life, like my choices in women, how I get down. And I was always someone who thought that I didn't have a type or I didn't have necessarily pattern. But you you understand in this aha moment, the reason why you keep landing in the same place. That's what I was going through. Now, here's the thing. I had this breakthrough moment. And even though I had this breakthrough moment, it doesn't mean that the answers was right there. I just had a point of understanding. Now that I had this breakthrough moment, now I got to actually kind of go into more work and I got to more find out what's going on. I got to I got to keep on going. Fast forward. One day I go visit a friend for their birthday and to not give too many details. But when we went to go visit this friend, that friend ended up having in that same weekend, we went to go see them a psychotic breakdown out of nowhere. Just a psychotic breakdown. Their family was trying to make sure everything was good. There were certain things, uh, how they were moving just wasn't, I knew something was up because they wasn't necessarily picking up the phone right before I landed or right before I got on the plane. And it was like seeing a whole different person. And this was someone that I had known for half my life. Okay. I had known them for half my life. And they were looking at me at times like a complete stranger. Like they knew I was familiar. They knew who I was, but just how they was moving. I didn't know. I had, that was the closest I had ever witnessed anything like that. And watching this breakdown and their family told me, said, yo, this just happened right before y'all got here. And it was heartbreaking to see that. But their family had been dealing with or having an understanding of mental awareness for quite some time. Some of them were doctors. Some of them had history of it, whatever. And so 
What I will say that was on a light note, like they knew exactly how to handle this this friend of mine. They knew exactly how to maintain. They was like, yo, give it time. Um, they're going to go through levels like this. They're going to go through levels like that. And when they do this, like they were so prepared. And so I'm watching that. This is their birthday weekend that we're still watching at. And lo and behold, after a couple of days, the temperature of the breakdown mild right before I was getting ready to leave, if that makes sense to you. And, you know, me and this friend, we still hug, still say happy birthday, still say I love them, all that good stuff. Right. And me and that friend, we're still good to this day. And I think that friend still has moments of that. And when they have moments, I'm not as concerned because I know that their family got them in that sense. And just I'm more knowledgeable of the levels and the stages that they go through. And this is all just from that weekend and having conversations with that friend even after that, because me and that friend had conversations later on. And they were able to express to me a little bit more about their condition and how long they've been dealing with this condition for a long time. And so I see that. I see myself and I see myself and I'm having this my own breakthrough. And what I see through this breakthrough and I started to understand the the value of having tools, the value of having a protocol and understanding that a therapist is not just enough. Because although my therapist and your therapist and people you may know, you might have a therapist that might tell you, yes, anytime you have an emergency, you can call. It's always good to set up a protocol for yourself, okay, that I like to share. So for example, there should be people in your life, friends, who are also understanding about mental health, okay? And they are your go-to people that you can call upon whenever things get really, really dark for yourself. So like for my, for me, when I'm at a real messed up place, like if something happened to me, something came out the blue, if I wake up, I get a phone call or something happened, I have a certain collection of friends that I can just call and say, yo, boom, 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 boom. And I've already let them know that who they are to me on this level. And so when I hit them, they already can just do things for me. So for example, some some months ago, I got a phone call out of nowhere, blew my mind, whatever. I called people who were in that zone for me. And the first thing one of my friends said, hey, yo, go buy a plant, go buy a plant. Because we had already discussed certain things that make me happy instantly. He's like, yo, go buy some plants. Go to that plant store I told you about. I was like, all right. And then they contacted the other person that was in my circle and was like, all right, look, I got to go do something, but this is what he's on right now. When he's ready to tell you, he'll tell you, but just know he's going through, he's, he's at that level. So you got to pick up. And the other person was there for me. So when I went to the plant store, by the time I came out, the other friend called me like, hey, yo, what you doing? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. It was like, all right, hey, go see a movie. There's one showing right now, two o'clock. Or you can come up here. I just fixed some food. Da, 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 da. Right. And so that happened. So I say that to say that that was very valuable. And let's say, for example, if you your your collection of friends that you set up like that, nobody's answering the phone. Then you also need to know what instantly makes you happy or can put you in the right place, too. So there's certain things that I know that when I'm in this dark place or something fluke happens, I know what I'm instantly about to do. One of it is my camera. I got into taking photography about two years ago. I was doing it first just from my phone, actually three years ago. And I wanted to get my own professional camera, but I have a big homie who actually does this for a living. And he said to me, hey, yo, 
when you get tired of that camera, homie, then come F with me. I was like, all right. I got tired of my camera phone, and then I came to F with him. He got me my first little small professional camera, my little Canon, a Nikia. I think that's how you pronounce it. I might be wrong. Sometimes I mispronounce things. Sue me. I got that, and that's something that I instantly use whenever I'm feeling a certain place because I'm not a professional. So I don't have, unlike my writing or when I'm on a podcast, I don't have to make sure that it's so on point and everything. I can just take photos. It's just for the love of art. So boom, when I'm in the zone and no one's picking up the phone, I go take photos. If I feel like I'm about to approach something dark, like if there's an anniversary of a death that's going to get to me, or if I'm feeling a certain way, like seasonal depression is something that's real big for me personally, then I get preparations aligned. I travel a lot. I got family in different places. I make sure there are places in those different states that I go to so I can keep my spirits up. Like I, I try to be proactive about it and not reactive about it. So you're probably saying to yourself, I'm bringing this up because of why? Well, it's this? Several reasons. I'm telling you all of that simply because the importance of self-work, the importance of acknowledging mental health is so severe. It's so important. And I told you the background story because when I think about King Cooper, I think about how someone like him did not have the resources. Now, clearly, homie was running the block when I got a little older. Now, I would like to think, because I never saw him again, that he's living a fantastic, positive life. That's what I would love to think right now. And that's what I want to hold on to. But in that moment, I can't help but to think that his life would have been a little smoother. He would have been in his right grade if he had got the resources that he needed. The thing about getting those kind of resources is that they're not always available to us in our community. See, yes, Black people, we do. We, we have and still have a stigma when it comes to mental health, okay? We still sometimes look at it as taboo. Nobody wants to be quote-unquote quote crazy. But let's just say you're one of those Black people who are actually taking the different route. Let's say you're somebody who's coming into that point. You're like, no, nah, mental health is important. That doesn't mean it's affordable. That doesn't mean it's going to be, you're going to have the access to it. That doesn't mean the schools that you go to are going to have it. And this is something that I realized when I was a youth counselor because I was a youth counselor for youth that were coming from some messed up neighborhoods, but in the group homes that I worked at, a lot of them were now in these suburban rich schools, public schools. And a lot of these suburban rich public schools had therapists for every grade, more than one therapist. They had mental health in their classes. They had all this stuff from preschool on to high school. They had it, right? And I think about the resources that those kids had versus my kids had to get in trouble to have access to that. There were so many things that had to happen in their life for them to have access to that. Why couldn't they already have that? Why wasn't it always available for me? Why did something have to happen to me in order for me to somewhat actually afford to actually go? Like somebody had to literally be in love with me, be upset with me, pay the bill, <laughs> and then for me to be there. And then I had to scrap for money and I had to have somebody who was of understanding to allow me to continue because I know good and well that the money that she was missing out on me wasn't making or breaking her. But she was someone who was at not only a therapist, my therapist, it, she was also, she's also someone who's an advocate for black therapy, which is important. And then it's also understanding that when it comes to mental health, therapy is also in a sense like going to the dentist. The dentist that I have now is not the dentist that I had when I was four or five years old. You might outgrow it. You might outgrow the therapist that you're with. You might have a first experience that wasn't one for you. You might have a therapist that, for whatever reason, y'all wasn't clicking. Or you might actually outgrow your therapist. There's levels of that. And there's conversations that need to be had about that. 
the conversations that we're not having enough is how much as a community we need to have and we need to be patient more about. When I told you about the second relationship and they were saying, fix him. Well, that's the attitude I've seen even in the conversation that we're having now about mental health. I've seen people say, black men need to go to therapy. So you work that out. And that's true. Brothers do need to go to therapy and they do need to work that out. But that's not a, a problem solver. A therapist's job is to help provide you tools and help you give you some sort of avenue and routes that are healthy for you and practices and open up opportunities for you and reflection and so on and so on for you to help you understand. It's not to fix you. So even if you have that attitude that your boyfriend, husband, or partner, girlfriend, lover, or whatever needs to go get fixed, you are already approaching the wrong attitude. And we do need to create more communities of understanding and grace. Now, I'll tell you another reason why I feel that way is because There are times on this healing journey that I am on and understanding this healing journey. There are times where the healing journey can become very lonely. Okay, when you have a breakthrough and you are growing and you are understanding your health, because I compare therapy a lot to the dentist. And the reason why I make that comparison, because if you went your whole life or 18 years of your life and you never been to the dentist and then you go to the dentist at 18, The dentist is going to spend the next five years taking care of everything that needed to be taken care of for those last 18 years. Okay, because you got all kind of plat, you got all kind of things going on with you because you've never been to the dentist for 18 years. It's going to take that dentist about five or six years to get you up to speed in order for you then to go forward and just to just to be on some basic cleaning. But for them first five, six years, if you ain't been to the dentist in a long time or you've never been to the dentist, they're doing back work. That's what therapy is for those for a lot of us that are entering it now in our 30s and our 40s or our adult years or even in your late 20s or even if you're 18, even if you're a teenager, that's what it is. If you haven't been in a long time, the therapist is doing a lot of back work. It's going to take you some time to get up to that point of a quote unquote breakthrough. And it's not going to necessarily mean your problem is going to be solved. And it needs to be an understanding of that and more conversation that needs to go on about that. But as you're going through that, the thing about therapy that is good and how I shall say, I don't want to say bad, but somewhat of a turnoff is that it can separate you as a black person. Because as a black person, at least in my life, I find very few people who are actually engaged in that or there are certain spaces that I have that. But you take, for example, like when I go back home and me and a friend might have a disagreement or an argument, I can instantly tell who has been receiving therapy and who hasn't again, it's like the dentist. You ever had to talk with somebody who breath is kicking and that's not necessarily morning breath. They got something going on back there. No matter how many breath mints you throw in their mouth, that's what it's like after you go through so many years of therapy and you having an argument or some kind of confrontation with someone who is not in therapy, you can see it. Like you can actually see it. I had a friend not too long ago. We got into it about something that was so silly just a misunderstanding. And in that misunderstanding, I try to be accountable. Like I was just like, Oh, my fault. My apologies. I I shouldn't have, I shouldn't sent you this. I shouldn't have said this. And I I sincerely was sorry because I didn't think about what I said or what I did. I I wasn't thinking. I just, I said it. Boom. And I was like, yo, I apologize. And they were on some, yo, fuck your apology. (laughs) Straight up. Let me try to take no high road. They were on that. 
And I was like, yo, I'm not, I'm not trying to take no high road. I really was caring about your feelings, but I had to realize who I was talking to. This individual was not in a space or in a place where they can see that as real. They still saw that as me kind of like talking down on them as an insult. But I was trying to go back and forth with them, let them know, like, no, man, I really am sorry. Like, you know, I love you. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't mean to say this to you. I didn't mean that. And they was not trying to hear it. I tried to call everything. They wasn't trying to hear it. And it's a real thing. And it's something I had to kind of, you know, I had to let go. Because people are entitled to be upset and to be mad. And they don't owe you anything. Keep that in mind. They don't owe you anything. But what I'm talking about is being able to see how the levels of vulnerability that I may have versus the levels of vulnerability that they may have. What I'm able to receive and what they're not able to receive in that moment. And I think that if we had more in our community, if we had more understanding, if we had more practices and we were making these things a lot more graceful and we were having more conversations and sharing more information about this, then it wouldn't just be even to that a mental health day or a month. It can be things that are practiced like all the time, like going to your dentist every six months. And sometimes you might have to go in between going to get your yearly checkup with your doctor. And yet sometimes you have to go in between getting your car checked out. We have all these other things that we go and we get checked out. But when it comes to our mental health, we kind of bypass that. And then it's completely unfair when you get to a point of like, okay, I do want to go. And then you can't even afford it. Your insurance ain't covering it. And yeah, there are certain employers that are starting to get hip to it and they got into plans and things of that nature, but there's still a lot of us that do not have the resources for it. It doesn't. If we can get to that point of understanding and we can start sharing tools and and having the conversations that I'm having with you and knowing the value of it and the importance of it, then we can be a lot more gentle and kinder with each other and we wouldn't have to be so guarded and we wouldn't have to wait until we're in trouble in order to get help. We wouldn't have to do that. And understanding that these things that are receiving to us are only for our benefit. Now, I can go into a whole wide range of theories of how the oppressors are trying to keep us down. They don't want us mentally healthy because as black people, if you can keep us mentally checked out, then we won't know what's going on. Yeah. I mean, yo, the show is called The History of Being Black, right? Ah, I believe that. Okay. I don't have anything right now significantly to back it up, but trust me, you holler at me on Twitter. I, I'm telling you right now, I definitely believe that. But yeah, I definitely think that as time passes, if we start to have these conversations about mental awareness, we have to make it more than just a hashtag. We have to do more than just, okay, it's cool to talk about it now. No, we all got to collectively be about it. Listen, if you don't necessarily believe in going to therapy, then please let me advise you that you still need to do something where you need to tend to yourself. You need to wake up in the morning, stretch, drink water, practice some breathing exercises, have some sort of practices in your routine that are beneficial to your well-being. Because if you don't, you will find yourself in a place where you will be so crowded emotionally, you will be so out of breath that you will suffocate right where you stand. You won't have a friend that you can find, you can call to. And even when you will reach out to people, you'll be in a crisis mode and you won't necessarily be in a position to be able to articulate your needs. So maybe if you can start having those practices right now and when things happen and you find yourself being in a situation, you can have a community of people around you that can help you in that moment. Because if you have that, 
and you have a healthier life and you have that, regardless of what your faith may be, I'm pretty sure whoever you're believing in or what you believe in wants you to live a healthy life. I'm pretty confident. Okay. If not, then you might want to check and see who you actually want to believe in. Now, listen, there are a lot of things and directions I could point you into. Now, I've, I've, I'm a big person who believes in therapy and I think that we all should get it. Okay. But if you don't, I'll be someone that would love to share with you some of the practices in the future that I do and love to have conversations more about it. But for right now, I just want to suggest to you to be kinder and be gentler to each other. If not for yourself, then the person that's next to you. If you know your limitations, if you're one of their village, let them know your limitations. Tell them what you're not available to do, but what you can do. You may not be the individual that they can actually talk to, right? You might be the person whose role is to take them go pick them up and just go drive them around the block a few times. You might be too busy to physically drive them around the block. You might be somebody who can recommend them something else to do. Know what your position is and know what your friends are and ask for. And let's all listen a little bit more. Let's lean in a little bit more to the things and the notes that our friends are saying is because as someone who's had a friend who's taken their own life and has worked with kids in the past who have taken their own life, I can tell you that the one thing that they all have in common is that they did not have nothing in common. Okay. Some of them were rich, some of them was poor, some of them was black, some of them was white. All right. And to my friend who had did it years ago, everybody thought everything was cool. It can get real out here if you're not careful. So let's all just try to be a little bit more in our day to day aware of ourselves and the people that we love that are next to us. Because nobody wants to be talking about how good of a friend that person was after they're going and wondering what you could have done. Okay. So if you didn't know, now you know. Let's be better at it. All right? That's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the History of Being Black podcast. As usual, you can find me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. And make sure not only do you listen to this episode, but past episodes also, too, on Spotify, on iHeart, on Apple Music, on Omi. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But on all your digital platforms, and make sure you tell a friend and tell a friend about the History of Being Black podcast. All right? As usual, be blessed when successful, and I'll talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.